We're reading Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have had with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the thing is concerning himself. And then they were going, and then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he was vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour, and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they talked about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Paul Francisco is a uh, Christian writer, became a Christian in later years, did not grow up as a churched individual. So when his family did go to church on rare occasions, he really didn't know what was going on. He had never been baptized or anything, let alone known what it meant to do the Lord's Supper thing. And they went there on a Sunday where they were observing communion, the Lord's Supper. And so he was still trying to figure out all the rituals himself. And he saw the offertory plate being passed. And when it came to him, he just held it and looked up at his dad like, I don't know what to do. And his dad handed him a dime. And he was like, oh, I see. And he put the dime in the plate and pass it on. Well, it wasn't long after that the communion plate came around with a piece of bread. He had never been baptized or anything, so he took the bread and began to hold it, and his mother whispered to him, you can't do that yet. And Paul looked up at her and said, why not? I paid for it, and then went on. And sometimes you and I can fail to appreciate the meaning of the Lord's Supper, or should I say meanings, uh, sometimes we curse ourselves with overfamiliarity with it. It becomes way too ritualized, kind of a, a, a dull routine, or maybe we have this sense of entitlement about it. And it really does not mean all that it could, and we wind up taking it for granted. 
This is the second Sunday after Easter, and frequently, if you ever follow the lectionary or other devotional readings, this is a very common reading for the second Sunday after Easter about Cleopas and his friend who were on the road to Emmaus that was read so well just a moment ago. It's a common passage for this day, and what I like about it is that it really reminds us about significant meanings of the Lord's Supper itself. Because you know the story. Cleopas and his friend are walking to Emmaus. This mysterious stranger shows up and they begin to tell him how sad they are. They're lamenting the fact that they thought that Jesus was to be the Messiah, but he was put to death. And now they're going back and grieving. And yet this mysterious stranger begins to open up scriptures to them. But it isn't until they get to the home and the stranger is invited in and he blesses the bread and breaks it gives thanks and breaks it, and then they recognize who it is. It's Jesus, and then he vanishes. Interesting, interesting story. And maybe it can rekindle our understanding of the Lord's Supper because, again, there are multiple meanings of this wonderful meal that I think we need to know. And and, and there really are past meanings about it, present meanings, and future meanings of this, all of which are equally significant that we need to really recognize and appreciate. Now, In a few minutes when we engage in the Lord's Supper and we come forward to receive the elements and go back to where we sit and pray and then partake when we feel led, is it going to be different? Are there going to be fireworks or will angels come down and be flying around? I don't think so. But I do hope that you and I will have a renewed appreciation for all that this meal means to us. And Paul notes these three meanings in a very concise way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to go there, you can. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. And it really, in just a few sentences, really captures the past, present, and future meanings of it. And like I said at the beginning of the service, this was written prior to John Mark's compilation of the earliest gospel, which is the gospel of Mark, of course. So let's talk, first of all, about the past meaning of the supper. Do you remember what Cleopas and his friends said to one another after Jesus is recognized and then vanishes? They say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scriptures? In a sense, as he took us back through the past and journeyed us up to the present, but helped us to remind the meaning, be reminded of the meaning of the past. And it begs the question for you and me, have our hearts burned as of late? regarding the meaning of this meal, what it represents to you and me. And in one sense, it is a a significant act of remembrance. Look with me at verses 23 and 24 there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul begins by saying, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, y'all help me with this, do this in remembrance of me. It is an act of remembrance. It's an opportunity for you and me to go back into the past and realize the fullness, the gravity of what Jesus did for us on the cross when his body was broken and his blood was shed. And I want us to go back in a very uh, unique way this morning. I'm going to give you a brief reading from a book called The Orthodox Heretic by a guy named Peter Rollins. He's kind of like the new Donald Miller. A uh, very provocative writer, a very young guy, and, and has already written books that have really stirred people up in, in great ways. Orthodox Heretic was recommended to me, by the way, by uh, Wes Spears, and I've been going through it with some students this semester. Sarah Curley, Sarah, yes, Sarah's been in that group. And it's a bunch of provocative writings, and what it is is he kind of takes fresh angles on parables that Jesus told or th- historical occurrences that, that are recorded in the Gospels. 
And there's one that we read, I think this was last week, Sarah, we read this one, and none of us really knew how it was going to wind up, and, and it was just helpful. So I want you to imagine yourself being there at the Last Supper. And let me just read this, and stay with me. This will take a couple of minutes, but stay with me on this. It helps us kind of go back to the past and remember. It is evening, and you are gathered together with the other disciples in a small room for Passover. All the time you are watching Jesus while he sits quietly in the shadows, listening to the idle chatter, watching over those who sit around him and from time to time telling stories about the kingdom of God. As night descends, a meal of bread and wine is brought into the room. It is only at this moment that Jesus sits forward so that the shadows no longer cover his face. He quietly brings the conversation to an end by capturing each one with his intense gaze. Then he begins to speak. My friends... Take this bread, for it is my very body broken for you. Every eye is fixed on the bread that is laid on the table. While these words seem obscure and unintelligible, everyone picks up on their gravity. Then Jesus carefully pours the wine into the cup of each disciple until it overflows onto the table. Take this wine and drink of it, for it is my very blood shed for you. With these words, an ominous shadow seems to descend upon the room, a chilling darkness that makes everyone shudder uneasily. Jesus continues, as you do this, remember me. Most of the gathered disciples begin to slowly eat the bread and drink the wine, lost in their thoughts. You, however, cannot bring yourself to lift your hand at all, for his words have cut into your soul like a knife. Jesus does not fail to notice your hesitation and approaches lifting up your head with his hand so that your eyes are level with his. Your eyes meet for only a moment, but before you are able to turn away, you are caught up in a terrifying revelation. At that instant, you experience the loneliness, the pain, and sorrow that Jesus is carrying. You see the nails being driven through the skin and bone. You hear the crowds jeering and the cries of pain as iron cuts against flesh. At that moment, you see the sweat that flows from Jesus like blood and experience the suffocation, madness, and pain that will soon envelop him. More than all of this, however, you feel a trace of the separation he will soon feel in his own being. In that little room which occupies no significant space in the universe, you have caught a glimpse of a divine vision that should never have been disclosed. Yet it is indelibly etched into the eyes of Christ for anyone brave enough to look. You turn to leave, to run from that place. You long for death to wrap around you. But Jesus grips you with his gaze and smiles compassionately. Then he holds you tight in his arms like no one has held you before. He understands that the weight you now carry is so great that it would have been better had you never been born. After a few moments, he releases his embrace and lifts the wine that sits before you, whispering, Take this wine, my dear friend, and drink it up, for it is my very blood, and it is shed for you. All this makes you feel painfully uncomfortable, and so you shift in your chair and fumble in your pocket, all the time distracted by the silver that weighs heavy in your pouch. When we read this the other day, we weren't expecting that ending. We thought it was just ourselves there at the Last Supper, and then it turns at the very end, and who are you? You're Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. A powerful reading. 
And the truth is, sometimes we are Judas. We continue to betray him, no doubt. And yet he still invites us to this table. That's the amazing thing. A few Wednesday nights ago, we had a great Bible study, and, and we were talking about Judas. And, and for those of you who remember, we, 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 we tried to wrestle with that age-old question of, you know, was, was Judas destined to betray Jesus, or some would say predestined? And we didn't really fully resolve that, but we did discern the reality that had it not been Judas, somebody else would have stepped in. No doubt in my mind. Had it not been Judas, someone else would have stepped in and betrayed Jesus for their own self-serving reasons. And that all the more loudly speaks to our brokenness, our depravity, our darkness, our sinful natures, which is the very reason why he died for us. No doubt. Let's not kid ourselves. We still betray him. But the amazing thing is he still loved Judas and continues to love all of us Judases and continues to invite us to this table as an act of remembrance when we can remember in the past what he did for us so long ago. Remember you and our remembrance leads us to worship. That's understanding and appreciating the past meaning of the Lord's Supper. But we move to the present meaning. Just two days ago, two days ago, how many of y'all heard of Brennan Manning before he wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel? He wrote The Importance of Being Foolish. I know some of you use that as a Sunday school book. Uh, Ruthless Trust is another great book of his. Just a remarkable, remarkable man. Uh, kind of cut out of the same cloth as Thomas Merton and, and Henry Nowen, a very much a contemplative, great author, great speaker, uh, one of the two best speakers I ever heard in chapel at Sanford University, no doubt. He's, he was a frail guy, an old guy uh, some 15 years ago when we had him come speak, and, and it was just amazing. He just had a flannel shirt on and, and jeans with patches on him and sandals, and he got up there, and he's this little guy, and, and blew the place apart. It was just incredible. And that night, he spoke at Shiloh, which is uh, the uh, student-led worship that we have over at Sanford. And at the time, we were meeting in beautiful Hodges Chapel, and it was just an incredible service. And he got up to speak for the service that night, and he talked about how amazing it was just to receive the grace of Jesus Christ and how it just pours out upon us. And it was a great message. And we always observe the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, at the close of uh, Shiloh. And so we you know, got to that point and I was the one who was asked to, to hold the chalice that evening. And so, you know, I'm holding this chalice with the drink inside, and somebody else is holding the bread over here. And people come up one at a time, much like we do here where you come forward to receive it. And, and we practice intinction at Shiloh. It just works well. Uh, some of you who have been to the Monday Thursday service here, that's how we've done it before, uh, where you come forward, and what do you do? You take the bread, and what do you do? You dip it into the goblet, into the chalice, and then partake of both elements at once. That's called intention. That's an age-old way of observing the Lord's Supper. And we made it very clear to Brennan before the service, that's how we do it at this service. But I guess he was just so stirred by what he had to say about the grace of Jesus Christ, made so available to us, that he was the first guy in line, and I'm standing there all solemn and everything, getting ready for the observation of the Eucharist. He's the first guy in line. He comes forward, and I'm thinking, intention. Take the bread, dip it in there, we're good. Instead, he puts his hands over mine and over the chalice and just 
upends it, just takes this massive gulp of it. And I'm like, you know, okay. And then he puts it back down, slaps his hands upon my shoulders, looks into my wide eyes at that point and just says, thanks be to God, and walks off. I don't think he ever even got to the bread, by the way. It was great. But I just thought that was so beautiful because he was so present into the moment and celebrating the grace that Jesus Christ offers. In that moment, he knew that there is present significance here as we observe the Lord's Supper, not just past. One of the most laborious books I ever read, it was over 800 pages by a Benedictine monk. from. Uh, he wrote it in 1945. Gregory Dix is his name, and, and it's called The Shape of the Liturgy. And it's 800 pages on the history and theology of the Lord's Supper. I read it for a doctoral seminar and nearly lost my mind because it's a lot of reading and my eyeballs almost fell out. But one of the things he stresses in that book is when we observe this supper, we're not just recalling what Jesus did on the cross, but we are recalling it right now. You know, it's not just representing what Jesus did so long ago. We are re-presenting it now with the present meaning of it. And there's a wonderful passage that you find as you read on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you read on, I think it's verse 25 there, that really speaks to the present meaning of this. We'll get to that in a minute, but just think about it. This is really important from the passage on the road to Emmaus. You remember Cleopas and his friend recognized Jesus when he breaks the bread for this meal. A meal similar to the Last Supper. Yes, similar to the Lord's Supper. And then he vanishes. And do I think that happened? Yeah. How it happened? I don't know. It's beyond natural law because God can do these things. But Luke is very careful to record that. Why? Because he is reminding us of an important message, which is even though we cannot see him, he is still present. Big message that Luke is trying to drive home with that historical account saying, remember, you may not see him, but he's there. And there's another facet to it that is so wonderful. And let's read 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. It says, in the same way, after he took the cup, saying, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. That wonderful phrase, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That goes right back to Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. It is a direct identification with that passage where God says to the people of Israel, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then there's the wonderful passage that says, I will forgive them of their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant. And that's really pointing to this present understanding of the Lord's Supper, that that what this meal represents is the grace that Jesus offers to us each and every day, offers it to us even now as we confess our sins and partake of the meal. And the very presence of that grace now in the here and now, not in the past, not in the future, but now. So in a way, like Brennan, we can come forward and in a robust fashion celebrate this grace with gusto in the present moment because of this new covenant that he offers to us in this very moment in the here and now. Is redeeming love your theme right now? And will it be until you die? I think it was for Brendan Manning. And he died two days ago. And he is in the enviable place of being face to face with Christ. As we will be one day, which really points us to the future meaning of 
the supper. You, if, if you read on in the passage, Cleopas and his friend are just overjoyed and they get up and go to the disciples and tell them that they saw Jesus and recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And at some point, while they're having this exchange, Jesus appears before them and says, peace be with you. And then basically he says, you got anything to eat? They had to have been rather freaked out at that moment, but Jesus kind of settles them down, sobers them up with these wonderful words. He says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection had been fulfilled, but there is still fulfillment to come. And that's good news for you and me. We have something else to look forward to, even as you and I still have to journey through this broken world. In one sense, the war has been won, and Christ is on his throne, but for now, we still have battles to face. But the great news is that not all Scripture is fulfilled. One thing that comes along later on, I hope sooner than later, is Christ's return. And this was a huge theme in the early church. I can't emphasize this enough. I think sometimes even more than the past meaning of the Lord's Supper or the present meaning, the future meaning was the most important thing in the earliest days of the church. Study Eusebius and other ancient historians of the church, and they will tell you that in the early church, that was the meaning that was so important to them because here were believers who were being persecuted and put to death for their faith. They were being put to death for observing the Eucharist. And so they couldn't wait for Jesus to come along. So as one early church father said, the early Christians observed the Lord's Supper as if Jesus was about to walk in and join them upon his return. That's how they yearned for him to come back. Frequently back then when they would observe communion together, they would sing or chant or pray these words, Maranatha, Maranatha. Does anybody know what that means? Come to us, Lord Jesus. Come to us now. So that's part of why we can engage in this supper in in, in joyful anticipation that one day he will return and all will be made well and full and complete and all will be reconciled. It's it's a wonderful passage that we read, the final verse here, verse 26 in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. The last three words are key. For whenever you eat of this bread or drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And they leaned into those last three words in the early church, until he comes again, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And they clung to that hope. Well, do you and I do that? I'm going to go back again to that Wednesday night study we did on Judas that just, just was such good, good give and take. And, and, you know, we talked about how, you know, was it foreordained that, that Judas should betray Jesus or was it free will? You know what? Ultimately, we decided that didn't matter. What was amazing was that Jesus, at the very least, foreknew what Judas was going to do. And that's what was amazing is that for three years, Jesus knew that this disciple who was in the inner circle who was one of his good friends, would ultimately betray him, and yet he loved him, kept him among the people, never excluded him, never excluded him, and he remained with the people up until the end. In fact, you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, as Joyce Delosier, who was at that study that night, said, it just amazes me. I marvel at the fact that right when Judas is betraying him, Jesus calls him friend. Now, how could Jesus do that? How could Jesus do that? Well, I can think of two things. One is simply agape love, unconditional, boundless, unfettered, unlimited love that Jesus had for all people as he has for you and me. But I think there was one other thing. Jesus knew the rest of the story. And I think Jesus knew that, in fact, I know that Jesus knew that even after the resurrection, there was still so much good to come. And that's the hope we lean into is his return to us. 
Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And we can give thanks for that incredible gift ourselves. In fact, I'd like for us to enter into the discipline of meditation. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And I want you just to take a moment to consider consider the living Christ as we remember him at this meal and celebrate the grace he offers at present and how he will offer us eternity as he returns and as we go to be with him in the future. And I want us to reflect this very uh, wonderful, mysterious grace and give thanks to him. In fact, that's the meaning of the word Eucharist. It means literally giving thanks for the good gift. So I want you to simply take a moment and give thanks to Christ for offering you his grace in this moment, even now before we enter into the meal. Will you do that? boundless love, this exceeding grace that he offers us even now is such a mystery. And we sing to that in just a moment, just the mystery of this grace that we did not deserve and yet is given so freely, so lovingly to us. So as we sing this song preparing our hearts for the meal, let us marvel at this mystery of his love for us. to the table now. Let's celebrate together. In the middle. Please come forward. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for your love, for your grace, which, which pours like rain. Thank you for this moment where we can understand the full spectrum of what this meal means. May we understand the fullness of what it means to be loved by you and and adopted by you and accepted by you and to have fullness of relationship with, with you that comes to an incredible completion at the end of all things. We celebrate you and joyfully anticipate that. Lord, be with us as we offer this word of praise to you. In your name we pray. Amen.